0: Hush, hush, hush. Here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you. He'll catch you if he can.
1: Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the relentlessly informative. I study ghosts, Bordiana, fashion history and death.
0: And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends and the impossible. Well, Chris, are you there? I'm joining you from my study in Italy. Um, very excited to talk about the perhaps the most interesting British fairy case, at least for me, uh, the Elf Dancers of Kai Kaled. Where do we find you today, Chris?
1: I'm in an undisclosed bunker in Ohio with a raining buckets outside, so... Uh... I have nothing better to do than talk about elf dancers.
0: Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Here we've got a lovely sunny day, and I've, I've even been out of the bunker today and got my quote into vitamin D. Um, Chris, we thought that this, this account is just such a powerful account that we thought that we could start um, with you actually reading it. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the sources afterwards. There are actually two complementary accounts you're just going to to read one of them, but I think on behalf of both of us, I should say that this is a Welsh account and that any war crimes against the Welsh language, well, we uh, just we just want to apologise ahead of time. Absolutely, okay. absolutely.
1: absolutely. I, I pride myself on, on having a good ear for languages, but I have been absolutely stymied with, with some of the pronunciations and I feel terrible about it, so please indulge me. Yeah. So this yeah. is the account of the elf dancers. This is the first account that was written about it. Reverend Sir, concerning the apparition I saw, I shall relate it as well as I can in all particulars. But as for the day and year, I cannot recollect. As far as I can remember, it was about the year 1757, about the seventh year of my age. In a summer's day, about noon, I with three others, one of which was a sister of mine, and he lists a number of young women who were with them, we're playing in a field called Kai Kaled in the parish of Bodvary in the county of Denby near the Stile, which is next Lennelwind House, where we perceived a company of dancers in the middle of the field, about 70 yards from us. We could not tell their numbers because of the swiftness of their motions, which seemed to be after the manner of Morris dancers, something uncommonly wild in their motions. But after looking some time, we came to guess that their number might be about 15 or 16. They were clothed in red, like soldiers, with red handkerchiefs spotted with yellow about their heads. They seemed to be a little bigger than we, but of a dwarfish appearance. Upon this, we reasoned together what they might be, whence they came and what they were about. Presently, we saw one of them coming away from the company in a running pace. Upon seeing this, we began to be afraid and ran to the stile. Barbara Jones went over the stile first, next her sister, next to that, my sister, and last of all, myself. While I was creeping up the stile, my sister staying to help me, I looked back and saw him just by me, upon which I cried out. My sister also cried out and took hold of me under her arm to draw me over, and when my feet had just come over, I was still crying and looking back. We saw him reaching after me, leaning on the stile, but did not come over. Away we ran towards the house, calling the people out and went trembling towards the place, which might be about 150 yards from the house. But though we came so soon to see, yet we could see nothing of them. He who came nearest had a grim countenance, a wild and somewhat fierce look. He came towards us in a slow running pace, but with long steps for a little one. His complexion was copper colored, which might be significant of his disposition condition for they were not good, but therefore bad spirits. The red of their cruelty, the black of their sin and misery, and he looked old rather than young.
0: Chris, I um, I was getting goosebumps as you were reading this and, and you read it beautifully, uh, you read it so well. As I've looked at this case over the last 10 days or so, perhaps I could just explain why the sources are so interesting here, aside from the the fascination of what actually happens to these kids. Um, There were four children on the day in question, three girls and a boy. And the boy was someone who would go on in life to be an important person. This was Edward Williams. He was seven at the time. And Edward became one of the most famous Methodist preachers in Britain at a time where being a Methodist preacher was, was like being a rock star. Now, Edward Williams remembered, and when he was a young man, he wrote this account and he sent it to a figure that anyone interested in the British supernatural or British fairies will know. Uh, This is Edmund Jones of Monmouthshire, who in the 18th century collected. series of what he called apparitions uh, from the Principality of Wales, including many, many accounts that seem to borrow from fairy lore. But then towards the end of his life, Edward Williams wrote a second account for his autobiography. It was published after his death by Elias Owen at the end of the 19th century, who had the manuscript copy in front of him. So it is nice to have two sources that were written 40 years apart about the same experience from the same person. Also in the first account, of course, we have this description of four children simultaneously seeing this. And when he was 21, um, Edward Williams took trouble to say, look, I was not the only person. Um, My sister saw this and so did her two older friends who were there in in their early
1: mid-teens. Um, oh, if only they could have been interviewed also and Yeah, no, th- This there. would have made
0: it so much more interesting, but it's, it's very, very rare to get fairy experiences where more than one person sees something. Yes. And perhaps Chris, this is something we could talk about a bit later. When it happens, it's almost always children and adolescents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this sighting actually took place near the river Clwyd, to the south of the village
1: do you so, know if it was a public field was it you know like public grazing anyone could be there or did it belong to the mm-hmm. house
0: right so i've gone to some efforts to try and track down the exact position uh-huh. um and I, i've lent on this alan uh, alvin nicholas in 2013 in supernatural wales a fun book on the supernatural in the principality, actually went to this area to try and track down the exact field. And he came up with several options. And here we should say that Kai kaled literally means hard field. So it's the kind of field name that just repeats itself. And what Alvin found was he managed to track down three fields of this name in the area. But I think he was a bit confused because he didn't know the first account. And the first account is very clear that it was next door to the house. And so in as much as we can identify the house... Perhaps we can't be exactly sure where the field was, though, if we had the tariff maps, I think we would be. But it's just within the area of the house. And this means that it would have been the house's own field. And what these kids do is they run over the style. They, they come jumping over. And for me, one of the, the fascinating bits of both accounts is the way that all these years later, Edward Williams remembered the order of the girls going over. Yeah. He was the last. <laughs> Clearly... I mean, to remember such a small detail, clearly it was just the terror in his mind of thinking, when am I going to get over? And they ran straight to the house. Now, the dancers were supposed to be about 150 yards from the house. The kids had been playing about 70 yards from the dancers. And so we have a bit of complicated trigonometry here, but Chris, we're we're within shouting distance of the Mm -hmm. house.
1: Yeah, it um, seemed
0: like it. They arrived screaming and shouting. The adults came out and they found absolutely nothing. And I, I mean, there were just so many interesting aspects to this account, Chris. But let, let's start with um, the whole question of the clothes.
1: What, what is interesting to me is that in many Victorian, at least, fairy accounts or early 19th century fairy accounts, people see fairies wearing outdated clothing maybe 50 to 100 years before they seem to see court dress or cocked hats, knee breeches, that kind of thing. This is almost unique in saying that they're wearing what would have been appropriate military uniform for the time, the red coat, even the Welsh soldiers and the British soldiers were wearing at this time. Um, We also know that fairies are often dressed in red. So that's not unusual. What's odd is the spotted handkerchiefs tied around their head. And I noted in the the second account, he says that the The ends were tied and fluttered down the back of their necks. So it was almost like you would think of a pirate's kerchief on his
0: his head. Right. So one of the things I'd wanted to ask you was just I had problems visualizing that. And and that's what I came up with in my head, but I wasn't sure. So what we're seeing is a a handkerchief tied over the head as a kind of an improvised hat. Is that the idea? Yep.
1: Yep, exactly. And, and it's, um, it's yellow. Is it red with yellow spots? It's, yellow. It's red with yellow spots. It's red with yellow mm-hmm. spots. So yeah. yeah, it's a it's a polka dotted. They call it a handkerchief, but um, the word handkerchief was also used for neckerchiefs. You know, things you tied around your neck. So um, it it was often used to tie underneath a hat. You know, we can think of pirate illustrations. That's the best analogy I can give. But the idea that they're not dressed in outdated clothing, the children do not say that. They say they're dressed like contemporary soldiers. I mean, Um, I think one account actually says they were dressed like, you know, in military clothing, but I'm not sure how accurate that is. So
0: lots of things to say here, lots of questions to ask. First of all, this business that fairies wear older clothes, this is something that's certainly true in modern fairy accounts where fairies are often... Uh, sometimes they appear to be Georgian or Victorians. Sometimes they appear to right. be medieval. So this this is something that continues down to the present. I've often wondered how far into the past this actually goes. I, I think the earliest reference I have, though it's a rather strange one, is from the later 1700s. But my suspicion yeah. is that a lot of the time we read about mm, fairies' clothes in the early modern period, if you think of all our many, many Jacobean, Elizabethan sources, My suspicion is that maybe some of those are also describing outdated, strange clothes, but perhaps we're just not sensitive enough to recognise that that's what's going on. I'm not sure.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting theory. Uh, Some of the descriptions are so specific. The cocked hats, the leprechaun is quite a bow in his dress. He wears a red square cut coat, richly laced with gold and inexpressibles, which were breeches, cocked hat, shoes, and buckles. Leprechauns always seemed to dress in Regency clothing, the tailcoat, the breeches, and the stockings. And I found out the reason for a possible reason for why this identifies, for example, the stage Irishman um, used clothing from the Regency period was exported in vast numbers from England to Ireland.
0: Well, wow, that, that's so really, that's really if you wanted to
1: find some used clothes, that's what it was going to be. It was going to be a tailcoat. You find the color red and green, of course, as you as you see that. They often are thought to look like a soldier. There's cases of them described as soldiers. What in the Victorian period in the 19th century art, they are almost uniformly dressed like medieval or very flowing robe kinds of things. But the actual people reporting them say they looked like they're wearing Georgian dress. Um
0: let, let, let me approach this from another direction or a couple of other directions, even. It it's true that they're compared to soldiers, absolutely. Um in both accounts, um, this point has been made. British soldiers in the period, of course, wore red coats. It marked them out. Mm-hmm. If you think of the the British regiments at Waterloo, say they're all in this glorious scarlet. But is it possible that what we're seeing here is actually children – I'm just asking myself, how often do children in the 18th, or for that matter, the 19th century, see people in uniform dress? Uh, Sorry, I don't mean uniforms, but I mean uniform dress, the same kind of clothes. Same kind of clothes, ah. If it had been the Middle Ages, they they would have also seen people in religious orders. But if you – if you i mean we don't even have to talk about rural wales here but if you live in central london i think the only time you will see people in the same clothes a set of people would be people um in the military either in the navy where uniforms were, unless you were an officer, were far less pronounced, or actually a red coat. And so, I, I know that there's the, the business of the color, but but maybe it's just a child saying, "Oh my goodness, all these people are dressed the same."
1: Yeah, the other place you'd find uh, identical clothing would be liveries, servants' liveries. So that's another possibility. Okay, that's interesting. They were often very stiff-looking, regimented clothing with braid on the outside. Uh, They were usually (laughs) trimmed with the owner's heraldry so they couldn't be pawned. (laughs) Yes. but um, Yeah, so that would be the other idea, that uh, if you saw somebody uniformly. And then again, we have Morris dancers who do dress identically. What they call the teams or sides all dress the same way. Okay,
0: let me throw another thing into the mix with clothes. One of the things that often comes out in fairy accounts, and uh, this is true of early modern accounts, but it's certainly true of the the 19th century accounts where we we start to get the first significant numbers. Fairies are often described dressing the same and acting the same. Now, quite why this is, maybe we don't need to get into, Mm. but perhaps it's just worth signaling. Often in witness accounts, you have fairies uh, marching together, dressed in the same way yeah. or doing, doing jobs like, say, cleaning or um, mining, where you could imagine a kind of a synchronized action. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is, this is something else that repeats itself. And so perhaps the thing, I mean, the reason I know these fairies and that this relates to Welsh fairy lore as soon as I read it, is that they're all dressed the same. That, that's actually the giveaway sign for me, not the hmm. colour of how they're dressed. Um, mm-hmm. For example, if someone said they were dressed in green um, and they had top hats, I would still say fairies. I, I think actually <laughs> the, the real clue to them being fairies <clears throat> in terms of their clothes is the fact they're all the same.
1: Hmm. Okay. not sure that I natu- uh, quite agree with you because I, I have a different theory, but that's, well, we'll get to it.
0: Okay. Okay. But
1: I I suppose once
0: we move on from clothes, the next thing is, well, their general description. I mean, what what things would you pull out of the general description apart from the clothes?
1: It was uh, it's a strange description of them looking like children, but then they're not children, Uh, but they're small of stature, described as dwarfs, Uh, the one running. He, he's running faster than you would imagine a dwarf could run. That was an odd description, and I don't quite know what to make of it. I have a theory, but it's, it's just quite unusual. They have strange proportions. Uh, I've seen this before, though, in another case of a young girl who was dancing with the fairies uh, herself, and she said they looked like children, but their faces were old. Right.
0: Chris, I, I, I just have to get a spoiler as we're going ahead. You will obviously have some theories about this case, but we're going to learn them sooner or later, right?
1: Oh, no, I'm going to withhold forever and, and people will be left. Tearing their hair out in mystery. Okay, well,
0: I'll, I'll see if I can. As, as we go through, I'll see if I can twist your arm and um, and and get you to 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 bring some of these secrets out. Uh, I, listen, so a couple of things you say there are interesting for me. First of all, when I, at the moment I'm looking back through the fairy census, which was this collection of about 500 fairy accounts um from Britain um and the rest of the world recorded. Um, from 2014 to 2017, where people basically wrote in with their fairy experiences. Um, And one of the things I've been trying to do is break down. I've been going back to this collection every so often and looking at it from different angles. And at the moment, I'm trying to break down the fairies into types. And I I thought that this would be interesting for this case and interesting um, perhaps more generally for those of us who are fascinated by fairies. I mean, the, the big types of fairies in the fairy senses, first of all, you have what I call the SWFs. These are the small-winged fairies. Uh, yeah. They're always smaller than a hand, um, certainly smaller than a bird, um, and they fly. They have wings. They tend to be female. The second type of fairies are what I think of as dwarf or gnome fairies. Um, yeah. These are fairies that are shorter than an adult, let's say, under five feet, usually quite a bit under five feet. Sometimes they go all the way down to six or seven inches. Um, and they're often described as being old or having wrinkled faces. They're more likely to be male than female in the And then there are a couple of minor categories uh, where, where there are far fewer, but they're still interesting. There are what we might call the tree spirits, often very tall spirits, often with bits of tree in their body, or at least appearing to be in their body. Um, and you also have uh, BOLs, bowls of light, uh, which in the last generation have often been interpreted as fairies. And what I would say is that the fairies that we're seeing here, if this account came up in the fairy census would fit really fairly comfortably into the dwarf fairy. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we're we're seeing a type of British fairy that persists down to the present and that goes all the way back from what we can see into Elizabethan times and probably earlier, though, the medieval sources present various problems. Um, And they involve fairies that are shorter than adult stature, um, if I was going to be asked for a rule of thumb, I would talk about a, a prepubescent child before children really shoot up. Um, so you know, a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, something like this. That's the kind of size. And that's the kind of size that we seem to have here. And this business about the old faces... I mean that that repeats itself in fairy accounts, mm-hmm. and I, I the skeptic in me, Chris, and you know I have this this awful skeptic side, but part of me thinks this this just comes from watching Lord of the Rings too many times. This is in <laughs> the, the the modern accounts, but yeah, I, I have to concede is often there in the older accounts. This idea that you have people who are apparently young, but when you get close to them, when you look at them, they're old. The, the final comment I'd make. It is that that very strange passage about the movement. It's just such a curious account. And I wonder if we could even make some more of it. I'm just going to read out the section. You've read it already, but it's so worth repeating, I think. He came towards us in a slow running pace, but with long steps for a little one. Um, I'm wondering if I'm just reading far, far too much into this, but I almost have a sense that there's some kind of distortion in time or some distortion in movement, which, of course, Mm -hmm. we know is typical in supernatural um, experiences. And I wonder if here you have a a memory of someone and this grown child is trying to express, I mean, here, 15 years later, the, the strange, unhumanly movements of these beings. I'm reminded of the way that, for example, in modern Men in Black, um, accounts men in black figures are often described as not having complete control of their limbs for example mm, yeah um,
1: that's true
0: yeah i i I just wonder perhaps i'm going too far what do you think
1: i just think he's describing this creature bounding towards them and that to me is more it, to me watching something like that is more scary than just somebody ordinarily running yeah, someone yeah, actually yeah. leaping towards you that's more frightening somehow.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I've, I've changed my mind already. I think I have went <laughs> too much into this. No, but I, I think what you've just said, I, I think what we have here is a, a terrified child watching someone come towards him. That, that yeah. probably that probably explains the slightly peculiar form of words he uses there. It, it's just the terror of this thing coming and these damn girls and my sister not yeah.
1: getting over the style in time. It's also, I've heard that when you're stressed, you know, there's an emergency, things seem to slow down. That's his perception of how the creature is running.
0: And I mean, this could be something that feeds into other supernatural accounts where where time seems to do slightly strange things yeah. in terms of movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean the last thing with appearance chris that we've we've shied away from so far but is is the the color of his skin yeah, yeah. that that remarkable adjective um if i remember correctly it's is it copper, yeah, here we are, copper-coloured, which might be significant of his disposition and condition. For they were not good, but therefore bad spirits, the red of their cruelty, the black of their sin and misery. And he looked rather old than young. But in 18th century Britain, the one thing that makes me think of coppery-coloured skin is um, ideas of the gypsies and ideas of the Mm. the Roma, uh, people travelling around the UK, Mm-hmm. Um, to different corners, um, an itinerant population, one that in terms of its DNA comes ultimately from the subcontinent and then slowly made its way west and into Europe. I, I mean, if you wanted to, and I think you would have to be fairly desperate, though, let's see where your theories take us a little bit later. Um, I mean, one possibility here would be that the kids had somehow um, run into a gypsy encampment. Though, of course, this um, begs as many questions as it answers.
1: Right. You've got no horses, you've got no caravans of any sort uh, that are visible, but it would explain why the people they saw were so anxious to get away. It would. It wouldn't, of course, explain their size. Um
0: no, uh, that that would be, or you know, possibly, conceivably, it could d- explain the size of a couple of them, but not really, um, not really all of them. I think this might be the the place to throw into the mix that in Elizabethan and Georgian times both with fairies and with demons and spirits generally. There are some very curious comments about the being different colors of spirits and different colors of fairies. Um, And red definitely features, and green definitely features, and white definitely features. We have a couple of references to black. Uh, These come Mm -hmm. in different accounts, and I've never understood if this is a reference to their skin, to their temperament, to their clothes i i, I really don't right. know but there yeah. is possibly there a kind of background this may not be as random as it seems chris listen I, I i've gone on about um skin color here but let's get on to the next thing that i i just can make no sense of and that's the dancing what what on <laughs> earth
1: would you say there they're dancing like morris dancers only more briskly and this is contrary to all the fairy folklore we know about fairies dancing. They dance in a ring or they don't dance at all. And there was no attempt to lure the children into the dance if, if they were fairies who were dancing. But, yeah, it's quite contrary. Uh, you also, in one of the accounts, and I, I don't have the one right in front of me, they're not sure whether these are men, women, or children. They're they're just not sure of anything about their sex. Um, but Chris, I,
0: I think it's even more interesting in the sense that they're not even sure of the numbers. And, right. and for me, that suggests a, a, a really quite frenetic speed of dancing,
1: because it suggests very glamour to me. Because <laughs> we're not going. You're not going to be able to spot how many there are. It's it's like. Uh, these things where you're supposed to count the number of trees and you've tied ribbons around them. And then every tree has a ribbon,
0: that sort of thing. This is one of the things where the second account account—it's not that it necessarily offers us more, but it offers us something slightly different. When it's talking about the numbers, it says that they were in, I think it's seven or eight pairs. Right. Whereas the first account doesn't make mm. that clear. So so they are paired Now, now, here I have a terrible confession to make. I come from one of the great Morris dancing areas of England, and I know absolutely nothing about Morris
1: dancing. Well, first let me offer my condolences because I'm not a fan of Morris dancing. (laughs) So you grew up with that. I'm, I'm so sorry.
0: So after first murdering the Welsh language, we're now going on to murder this this great British I'm institution, so but I, I, I have, I have similar, the, the reason I've never seen Morris dancing is it, it just all seemed, and forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It all seemed a little bit silly to me, but, yeah, but yeah. I, I really should have done my due diligence and watched the video of this. But what, what do Morris dancers do? Do they dance in pairs?
1: Are they all men? Are they men and women? What's the tradition there? The tradition um, we have records of women, Morris dancers. I think, as far back as the 16th century, it's mostly men forming the teams and it's, they have usually bells on. The trouble is that the Morris dancers of today draw a lot of their traditions. It seems from the 19th century revival of Morris dancing. So we don't really know how well does this correspond to the 18th century tradition of Morris dancing. But what we do know is that handkerchiefs were flourished in the hand, common Morris dancing accessory. It's not the one on the head, but they're also described as carrying handkerchiefs. Is that right? Yeah. In one of the accounts, it says they're carrying, I think it's the second, his later account, he says they were carrying handkerchiefs. also be relevant to note that some Morris dancing groups black their faces, or they did until just very recently. Uh, The name Morris dancing may derive from Moorish, we're not sure. So this darkened complexion might actually have been a Morris dancing convention. Edward Williams also said they were more like dwarfs than children, but Uh, I guess in another account of this, Sykes says they were almost as big as ordinary men, yet had the appearance of dwarves. And I'm wondering, were they actually Morris dancers, stuffed or padded or otherwise dyed in a grotesque manner? We do know that some of the Morris dancers padded or stuffed and had a very grotesque appearance. So I'm wondering if the odd proportions might have been because of some sort of Morris dance costume.
0: I'm just reading this passage. When I went through it, I'm afraid my lack of interest in clothes and my lack of knowledge about dancing. But I, I just went over this too quickly. But you're absolutely right. And they had white handkerchiefs in their hand held loose by the corners um from my my minutely small knowledge of morris dancing there are in fact handkerchiefs aren't there they're they're waved up and down but as to the size i think that might be the next sentence just let me read this out they appeared of a size somewhat less than our own i interpreted that as being less than us as children uh, but yeah, more this like actually... dwarves than children. Yes, it is. So they appeared of a size somewhat less than our own, but more like dwarves than children.
1: Yeah, but I think in the later, and I, this is, I think this is just, this might be just Wirt Sykes' version of the story. He says they were almost as big as ordinary men, yet had the appearance of dwarves.
0: Yeah, the problem is that we we Sites is a very unreliable chronic. Ah, that was my next
1: question. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, (laughs) what he did was he took the first account, he re elaborated it in a pretty shameless way. Mm. So, so anything okay. he says, I think right. is fairly Never worthless, Never um, wh- whereas, but, but that business about the handkerchiefs is absolutely in the second account. And it's, mm-hmm. I, I've read that account several times, but I just passed over it as, oh yeah, so they had hankies. So they had hay fever or something. Um, and, now, <laughs> and now instead you, you're, you're here with the Morris dancing theory, Chris, really for me, embarrassing question, but I, I need to get this straight in my head. In one account, he says they were like Morris dancers. In another account, he says they were like May dancers. Right. Is that one and the same thing? Yeah,
1: pretty much the same thing. Uh, They often performed at Whitson opening of the summer season. So they were virtually the same. So this wasn't the season for Morris dancers. So why would they be there? You know, they're very seasonal. So I, I can't answer that part.
0: Well, no, but I, I think with the handkerchiefs, we've already made quite a breakthrough there. There's
1: no bells. Uh, and I don't know how far into the 18th century the bells, how far back they go. They're I mean, a feature of 19th century, but I don't know. And I, I, I've seen earlier, oh, I think there's a Lancaster Cathedral image. I think it shows bells, but I'm not
0: positive. They. The way to go forward with this account is to to get in touch with someone who's an expert on pre nineteenth century Morris dancing. Exactly, um, because, because I mean that's that's where we're going to get new insights from, perhaps. Right.
1: I went to look at um, I looked at pictures of modern Morris teams and sides, and I couldn't see any livery that looked like what uh, you know a military coat and the kerchief. Everybody wears hats. Mm. or wreaths. And I just couldn't find any evidence of kerchiefs. But again, that might be an 18th century part of Morris dancing that we don't know about because everything we're seeing today is 19th century. Sure, sure, sure. Makes sense.
0: Okay. Let me just throw one last thing into our discussion of the dancing um, where you're very much taking the lead. One of the ghostly things about this account is the way that these dancers they apparently suddenly appear the kids are playing in the field and it's quite a big field if it's the one i found on the map and anyway the house is surrounded by large fields and these let's say 16 people suddenly arrive in the middle of the field not 70 yards from the kids i mean everything's possible and in the great scheme of things perhaps it's more likely that 16 adults wouldn't be noticed crossing a field than that 16 supernatural beings suddenly appear but i would you agree with me that that's in the account the idea that they're just suddenly there the kids are playing and they turn around and suddenly this little collection has appeared
1: Hmm. they were playing near the style where we perceived a company of dancers in the middle of the field about 70 yards from us
0: hmm i mean the dancers don't 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 walk up
1: yeah I, I don't know what the timing would be you know did we climb over to the stile and we were messing about under the hedges and then all of a sudden we noticed these people maybe they weren't expecting to see them so they only noticed them you know how long after they were playing did they notice it's it's not clear and, and listen
0: this brings me to another thing that I find particularly haunting in this account and that's the apparent lack of noise That there were no descriptions of yells or shouts in the dancing, Mm -hmm. no descriptions Mm -hmm. of music. And perhaps the single most terrifying absence of noise is the chase to the style that when the man arrives, he stares into the face of this seven year old boy, Edward Williams. And yet I'm sure that Edward would have remembered later in life if the man had said something, whether it was in Welsh or in English or in another language. And yet there is no description of him saying anything. He just looks at the child. He looks him in his
1: eyes. And why didn't he follow them over?
0: Styles um, are, are perhaps more a British than an American thing, but styles are basically these um, ways of crossing fences or, or sometimes um, walls where you can hop over, but they also have a role in the British supernatural because there's the idea that. Because they're on the boundaries, there's this old idea in all supernatural systems that boundaries are dangerous places. Because they're on the boundaries, spirits often haunt styles. There are lots and ah, lots of references yeah. to this. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. just to give you some place names, we have in Britain a couple of witch styles. We have a couple of boggit styles. I think we have four boggit ah. styles. Uh, we have several hob styles, we have a dead man style. Uh, Hmm. So we have have lots of these. Now, what seems to be happening here is another element of supernatural boundaries, um, that the supernatural cannot cross a boundary. And so if you're being chased by some horrific monster from your nightmares, you need to cross a bridge, you need to jump over a stream. Supernatural beings often do not cross boundaries. The other thing I I suppose to throw out there, and this is particularly so for modern fairy accounts where modern fairies are more benign, let's say, perhaps also a little bit more vapid sometimes, but certainly not as angry and as threatening all the time. When you think of the British accounts you know, how typical is this apparent anger that we see here? Or am I exaggerating? He certainly comes across as an unpleasant fellow
1: he does come across as an unpleasant fellow and the grim is, is a scary uh, aspect of, of of the creature being grim, but I don't know. It's, I'm trying to think of, fairies don't usually chase people. They lure them and they're not benign in in many cases, but I just can't remember the last time I thought of a, a fairy actually chasing somebody. I mean, you have boggarts doing it. Are are they ghosts or are they fairies or both?
0: I I think you've put it in a very interesting way there. I I cannot think off the top of my head of another example of a fairy chasing someone. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe this is why I find this account so beguiling that it's so atypical, really. Um, it's scary, at least for me, but it's also atypical. It I, is I can, very I mean there are lots of examples where fairies hurt people, but but loose fairies are not really in the business of, of getting up a sweat, I would say. <laughs> uh, I mean you 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 don't they they don't stride across a field to to get you They. They shoot a a fairy arrow at you, or yeah, something. Or you get fairy blasted. You you get fairy blasted, or or you just never wake up in the morning, or all your cattle are dead. But yeah, you you don't have a sense that the fairies go to great lengths to do this. And and I think you're right that this, the man chasing the kids, is 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 really quite untypical. Um, And I think I should also just throw in, as far as evil and so forth goes. Edward Williams was a Methodist. He was a Methodist as a young man. He converted from um, a more Episcopalian version of Christianity quite bravely in his late teens against the, the wishes of his family. And it's interesting that the first account is sent to Edmund Jones, who comes from a very similar quite militant, muscular Christian tradition where a being like a fairy is absolutely seen as being diabolical. And Edward Williams spent his whole life in that tradition. And so I think it's quite natural that in the end, he sees these beings in that light. And maybe we see there to some extent as well, his filter and the filter of the religious movement. He belonged to, I found the, the later quite, account quite moving that he he says that he's given it a lot of thought in his life, what happened to him when he was seven. Uh, uh-huh. And he says he's not going to go into the details, but actually reading it, it's very clear that he sees this as a an encounter with evil. Um, wow. there's, there's, no, there's no question about that. Now, again, whether this is his rose, rose-coloured uh, spectacles or rather uh, hellish covered spectacles. Um, we're, we're not sure, or, or whether this is something more to do with the experience itself. Who knows? C- Chris, though, I have to say, I'm very struck by this: that fairies never run; they march, they go through the sky in in tornadoes and wind blasts and and whirls of, of dust. But yeah, they don't run. It's fascinating that.
1: Mm-hmm. Which again, this is this is one reason I was wondering if this these creatures could be defined as real human beings disguised, uh, or if it was a Morris dancing troupe. If if so, why did they run? Or maybe they didn't want to be watched and the guy was just trying to scare them off. But uh, they did seem very uncanny, but they also had human features. So, yeah, I, a
0: hard, yeah. hard case to suss out. I came into this today thinking of this as one of the, the most remarkable fairy accounts, because in the end, you have four witnesses. And it's mm. true that we only hear from one of them, albeit twice, separated by decades. But in his first account, he talks about how everyone's still alive and everyone remembers the experience quite as well as he did. Mm. And so I was quite excited and I, I wanted to put it alongside other fairy accounts. But this business of them carrying handkerchiefs, this has shaken me a little bit, as is this <laughs> business of the of the, the fairy chaser. These, these are two things that had not occurred to me. I would point to two things um, that do make it seem supernatural, but I think it's clear from the two accounts written by Edward Williams, as opposed to that, this bastardized, bowdlerized account by um, Sykes. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I, I, I think that it's Bashed American. <laughs> yes. These colonials coming over. and But it, it is clear that these are, small human beings they're adults because they're age but they're also clearly um, very small um, there's also the fact that they just disappear the kids arrive in the house and in the second account in the first account it's done rather poorly at the end with a bit of dog roll. it says they just disappeared but in the second mm-hmm. account there are references to all the men in the house rushing out to look for them right if you had Sixteen men of unusual size, um, all dressed in red with yellow polka dots, um, chiefs on their head, particularly in a rural community. You know what rural communities are like? Right, right. And this field as well. I mean, why of all the places would they choose this field? Uh, One that seems to be so close to the house um, and one that belonged to the farm. Um, Again, I'm relying here on the work of Alvin Nicholas. Um, So, so Chris, we find ourselves in a bit of a weird situation where normally, in my experience, when we we talk about these things, I tend to be a bit more sceptical and you tend to be a a bit more trusting, let's say, um, (laughs) a bit more supernaturally inclined. Whereas here we've almost reversed positions. I mean, right. in the end, have you convinced yourself that these are not fairies, or are you just leaving open many possibilities?
1: Well, there's this. The, in the second account, they say that uh, we went to the place and made the most solici- solicitous and diligent inquiry in all the neighborhood, both at that time and after, but never found the least vestige of any circumstance that could contribute to a solution of this remarkable phenomenon. So that to me says they did their due diligence, they searched, they asked around. Somebody would have noticed a group of 16 or so people dressed that way. Uh, so that kind of undermines my Morris dancing, living Morris dancer theory. So perhaps what we can say is that the fairies had taken up Morris dancing. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean fairies famously mimic human activities, um, and you, you were absolutely right earlier. Every fairy account I can think of with dancing from before 1900 involves circle dancing. But but yeah, why why not Morris dancing? I came across a description, another Welsh description from a little bit earlier, also from a child. But this is Edmund Jones. So this is the man who collected Edward Williams. Right. He's on this, my
1: desk in front of me.
0: <laughs> I mean, a fascinating, fascinating man. And maybe another yeah. day we can talk about this. But this is a description of him seeing fairies when he was a child. For when a very young boy going with my aunt, Elizabeth Roger, my mother's sister in the daytime, somewhat early in the morning, but after sunrising, and here I'm going to skip with apologies several Welsh place names. By the wayside which we were passing, I saw the likeness of a sheepfold with the door towards the south. And over the door, instead of a lintel, the resemblance of a dried branch of a tree, I think of a hazel tree, and within the fold the company of many people, some sitting down, some going in and coming out, bowing their heads as they passed under the branch. It seemed to me as if they'd been lately dancing and that there was a musician among them. The men wore white cravats. And I always think they were the perfect resemblance of persons who lived in the world before my time. Mm. Um, We seem to go there back to that idea of of close men of a generation. Yeah. For there is a resemblance of their form and countenance is still remaining in my mind. He says this to his aunt and she says, oh, you were just dreaming. And um, of course, when they go back and look, there's nothing there. But she later came to believe him. Now, it's not dancing. It seems to be what happens after dancing. But there too, you have men dressed the same. You have um, a Welsh child um, having a glimpse, at least, into this world. So, Chris, let, let's finish this by saying: I, I mean, it, it would be nice, perhaps, if we could make these sources available, um, and I'm sure we can do this on the the podcast page. But I mean, anything else for reading about Welsh fairies? Any advice there? Anything that you've come across over the years? well
1: edmund jones i mean he's he's my go to welsh guy um i've got the, the compilation of his works is called the appearance of evil apparitions of spirits in wales uh and it's readily available so that's uh, it's nice to have his his very words uh, discussing all kinds of supernatural beings from ghosts to witches to to fairies. And and so
0: many creatures as well that don't fit to any of those categories. Yes, and, and I think yes. that's the really exciting thing about Edmund Jones. Yeah. You, you have the sense that you're reading raw experiences and some of them are what our Fortune friends would call the deep weird. I mean, they really are. <laughs> They really are very, very strange accounts. The the Appearance of Evil, by the way, is a University of Wales Press um, volume. It's reasonably priced, but it is a kind of slightly strange modern re-edition. And you can very easily get the originals online on our favourite sites like archive.org and just download them as a PDF. I I would add to what Chris is saying a negative. I would say stay away from work Sykes. Absolutely,
1: i I'll give him that.
0: (laughs) <laughs> he, he, he's colourful. He, he, I think the big problem with Wirt Sykes is he, he, was, he was a good storyteller. And if you gave him a 100 words, he would work it up into 150 yeah. words and yeah. put in extraneous details. I mean, in some ways, he was a natural journalist. And he, the, the other Welsh folklorists, um, as Chris was saying earlier, Wirt Sykes was an American. Uh, Welsh folklorists were very sniffy about Wurt Sykes <laughs> and, and perhaps justifiably so. Uh, but if you you really uh, want to, to damage um, your your central cortex, the book is British Goblins by Wurt Sykes. And then I, I think we can also give a shout out. I've um, quoted Elias Owen. Elias Owen wrote one of the two or three great books, but there's plenty of uh, fairy material there. He was the person who brought Edward Williams out. And then we have, uh, we, we must absolutely, again, mention Alvin, Nicholas and Supernatural Wales because Alvin had the courage to actually go there, Chris, uh, which mm-hmm. neither, neither you nor I have done. Um, and I bet he pronounces Welsh place names better than we do. I can imagine. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> Alvin also dedicates two or three pages to this account. Okay. Well, Chris, uh, that's all. I, I will wish you um, a good week and I hope to be back on the 1st of next month with our next supernatural conundrum excellent see you then bye bye
1: you've been listening to bogger and banshee a supernatural podcast if you've enjoyed it please leave a review as it helps other people find us those cursed algorithms